Welcome to the XY Advisor Podcast, a global community of financial advisors sharing and learning with one another to drive the positive evolution of financial advice. To get involved, go to xyadvisor.com or simply download the XY Advisor app. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Challenger. At Challenger, we want to help you ensure that your retiree clients can meet their retirement needs today and tomorrow. To access thought leadership, insights, and tips on retirement planning for your clients, head on over to challenger.com.au forward slash XY. Welcome back to the XY Advisor Podcast. I'm Fraser Jack, and we are wrapping up today the series on the changing landscape of retirement. I am joined by somebody who probably needs no introduction when it comes to conversations around superannuation, Jeremy Cooper. Welcome. Morning, Fraser. Now, for those uh, XY listeners who may not be familiar with uh, with you, even though I've said you need no introduction, uh, do you want to give us a quick overview of you and your history in what's what is uh, probably a fairly legendary uh, history around the Australian superannuation system. Sure, Fraser, I'll be as quick as I can be on this one. So uh, interestingly, I started my career as a lawyer. So I, I can say that I spent two decades as a, an advisor, you know, advising about different sorts of things, but using the same tools, I suppose. And then I saw uh, something more interesting to do, I think, and I ended up being the deputy chairman of ASIC for five years. That was in the mid uh, 2000s. Uh, I spent a lot of time working on what I call retail financial advice issues. And when my statutory term ended, the then Rudd government asked me to chair uh, a, a sort of holistic and first time review of the superannuation system, concentrating specifically on things like efficiency and governance and structure. And I spent, uh, had the privilege of spending 12 months doing that. Uh, that report was tabled in mid 2010. And then over the last 10 years, I've been uh, working in a, in a research and thought leadership and policy role at Challenger. And uh, I guess there are my credentials for, uh, for having this chat with you. Yeah, fantastic. I think credential-wise, the changing landscape of retirement uh, certainly started with you know things like the, the Cooper Review back in 2015. So, so uh, the the changing change the changing started a while ago. Obviously, everyone's going through a lot of change, uh, and so we've got plenty to plenty to chat about. And uh, of course, this is the last podcast in the series. Um, so we're going to sort of bit of, do a bit of a recap of some of the the thought leadership that came out of the series itself. Um, all sorts of different uh, things came out of it, which has been fantastic. And so we can talk about all those sorts of things. And we can add in all your opinions, of course, as well, around uh, what you think sort of some of the, the fears and uh, uh, changing, some change, some uh, some ideas around what sort of concerns retirees might have as they move through this period of their lives. So thank you for uh, joining me today. Pleasure. Now let's uh, let's kick it off with a um, uh, let's let's start with a bit of an overview. Let's let's have a conversation around the, the um, you know around what your thoughts were around the series, around some of the uh, or all of the podcasts, essentially from an overall point of view. Yeah, thanks, Fraser. So blending the uh, the nine podcasts all together, I was struck by just uh, how human uh, each of the speakers was. These were people who 
who really wanted to be doing what they were doing. You know, they weren't they weren't reluctantly uh, helping people. Um, it was a very non-technical discussion in a lot of ways, even though the ideas behind what some of the people uh, were saying on the podcast were were quite technically rich. They had a way of of saying it in a in a simple and, and pretty captivating sort of a way. And we we sort of you know pe- people talk a lot uh, in the advice space about the soft skills, but uh, you know a lot of the speakers were talking about things like trust and and reassurance and educating their clients, breaking things down into into simple chunks using visual aids in some cases, diagrams, videos. One person, I think it was um, Nicola, described herself as a confidant. You know, that's a that's that really that really resonated. You know, building building trust and, and having people able to um, to rely on on what you're telling them. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I think uh, um, advisors and planners around the country have always sort of been very good at that, having those conversations. And I, I sort of think about it as a as a translator. They're sort of translating this jargon and, and corporate speak, which we've all become accustomed to, uh, and then turning it around and saying, "Well, actually, in the eyes or the ears or the or the feelings and thoughts of a end client, it's very it's a very different language that they need to then speak." Um, so let's go through let's go through some of the uh, the series. Let's, let's talk about some of the um, the conversations, perhaps from maybe the first episode um, regarding with um, with Martin. Uh, some of the things that really struck me with him is around the budgeting and and, and cash flow of retirees, around um, uh, that spending conversation, um, and again, obviously, bringing in the human element. Uh, and one of the things that I noticed he mentioned was the concept of the the pension being the silver lining. Yes. Yeah, look, Martin was terrific because, uh, you know, some of the work we do are challenging. We try and distill things, you know, just like these people do, trying to distill things down into very simple ideas. And, and over the years, you know, one of the ones that we uh, use to, to talk about retirement is, is we used to say that cash flow is king. And so in a world where we, we save up and, and what, what is king there is, is really high investment returns, taking the least amount of risk at the lowest cost. You know, that's what as the person who sort of thought up the my super idea, that's that's what my super does. It just whirs away in the background, and it doesn't. The only cash flows that, that are involved are ones being put in by your employer. Typically, when it comes to retirement, that kind of flips on its head. And what's actually important is that you you get the spending money, if you like, because that's what retirement's about. You've deferred consumption that you could otherwise have enjoyed in your working life and now you're getting it in retirement and this is we heard this over and over again in the in the discussions we heard people saying I think it was uh, it was Noel saying that people you know are really reluctant to to spend their capital and and you know the job of the advisor is to give them the confidence to do that it's partly psychological it's partly giving them the products that help and yes the role of the, the pension is your you know if you're entitled to age pension that's your fortnightly paycheck from the from the government, and I often get people to to think about the age pension and and say, well, you know, that is in a sense the the archetypal retirement income product. You know exactly what's coming. It's it's unquestionably income. It's for spending. It's not for for putting in the bank. Uh, you know, there are as as I think it was Noel again who sort of said, well, there are trade offs with that. You can't pull an age pension. You can't pull a lump sum out of the age pension. It does a specific thing. But it's where you you should be starting. It gives you that peace of mind, that security that other other sorts of retirement income products uh, don't give you. 
Yeah, now we, we talked about the mindset of spending, and again, that, that there was a few people that talked about this, but that mindset of spending your savings when you have spent your entire life not spending it. You know, the the whole purpose was to continue to force feed the savings, and then that that uh, then to tip it upside down and say it's not savings anymore. It was a really hard mindset for uh, for the end consumer. Uh, it's a, I call it the uh, as if we need more battlegrounds in the in super space, but this this uh, uh, resistance to consume capital is, is is the real sort of battleground at the moment, and it's, I'm sure it's an area where advisors are spending a lot of their time, and it, it's partly because of the low rate environment, where you know even as recently as just going into the the GFC, which I suppose is getting a few years years back now, but uh, you could buy a ten year Commonwealth government bond that yielded you nearly six percent. And so what I call a, a yield-based retirement where you don't consume your capital was quite a, a realistic thing for, for pre-retirees and retirees to be thinking about. And, uh, you know, for the foreseeable future, that simply is not the case. And so when people talk about and think about retirement income, that is not accounting income or a yield. It obviously includes that, but it also includes a, a steady and safe rate of consumption um, of, of your capital. Otherwise, you're simply not going to, you know, for most people, you're simply not going to be able to sort of have the standard of living that you're really entitled to. And in a world where all your kids have got their own super, the imperative to leave sort of large slabs of your own uh, retirement savings to the next generation, the drivers just, just should no, no longer really be there. Yeah, it's very. That's a very interesting point, isn't it? The fact that uh, a lot of the retirees now, their kids will have almost had a full working life of super guarantee uh, to yeah. look after them when they get there. So, now I wanted to talk a, a little bit about also uh, when when I think about what uh, what Gail said in the second um, episode. A lot of uh, one of the things that really struck me. Uh, when I spoke to her, was just the the level of fear that's around some um, uh, people approaching this stage of life, especially uh, if they're maybe they're, they're single. And she mentioned a, a stat that stuck with me around um, you know uh, single women over fifty five being at highest risk of homelessness, and just that word homelessness approaching that time of your life uh, struck a real chord. Yes, look uh, again. I think Gail was very strong on the. Um the human uh, side of things, uh, but but the the status, the marital status of, uh, of retirees was another one that came up a, a few times. And there are some very interesting statistics, but I think one of the speakers said, well, look, there are sort of three scenarios. You're either just a couple or you're single. Of course, you could start as a couple and become single. And then there's a third species, if you like, or situation where the, you're a couple, but in fact, one of them is um, you know often quite unpredictably um, a carer, and uh, all of all of the the different sort of combinations of those things, and they can have some quite significant financial um, impacts. Obviously, particularly where the outcome is is unexpected, and, and in some recent um, work we did with with National Seniors Australia, we did a fascinating survey of um, over sixties, and we asked them specifically about their, their marital status. And we found that 80% of these men, so 60 and above, all the way up to you know quite older ages, 80% of them said they were partnered. Only 44% of 
of women in that age group said they were partnered. Now, initially, we were turning these answers upside down and scratching our heads and thinking, well, hang on, <laughs> what's going on here? But what happens is, of course, you've got just a number of things going on with those numbers. One, on average, women outlive men by about three years. So they can be in a perfectly stable uh, marital situation, but the, the woman on average is just going to outlast the male. So there are a lot more much older and, and single women uh, in, in a population cohort like that. But, but perhaps more interestingly, where, ma where marriages either uh, cease because of a, a death or a divorce, and the divorces definitely um, happen in retirement, men will almost predominantly anyway, will, will almost certainly remarry, typically uh, to a younger wife, and the women will not. And so th this has got a you know, pretty strong financial theme running, running on it because, of course, we know from the signal that the age pension gives off, the single rate age pension is relatively higher than the couple rate because it's actually more expensive to, to live alone. And so in, in planning and thinking about this, the, uh, particularly for women, the predicament of them, you know, spending a long time uh, living alone in retirement, it's got, you know, it's got a whole lot of social, psychological, but particularly uh, financial implications. Yeah, incredible. Now, uh, speaking of stats, actually, we were lucky enough to pick up some stats from um, Core Data uh, throughout the series uh, and some very, very interesting stats in there. Um, one of the things that struck me, of course, was the, um, was the concept of control and controlling uh, things as they happen. Uh, that was the theme, obviously, throughout the whole series, you know, trying to get control before things got out of control, if you like. And and, and the decision-making process, obviously, is a lot easier to make if, you, if you're planning versus, you know, reacting to decisions. Um, but one of the things that I was quite astounded about was the fact that in, um, I think Jason mentioned that there was only 7% of retirement was retirees retired when they planned to retire. That was quite remarkable, and and you know the implication there was that it, it sort of sadly off, off, they never they never sort of from that I suppose shock they never quite recovered on the the satisfaction score um, after that, and I think also particularly striking for me was this similar statistic for people who were you know relatively recently divorced and then found themselves in an involuntary retirement situation as well. Um, there were some, you know, very strong correlations with what we would expect between people who was who were renting in retirement versus people who had a home but yet still mortgaged, and then the the, the most satisfied were not surprisingly people who had their own home with with no mortgage. But yeah, very interesting piece of of work there. And of course, you know, it's understandable that people want control and certainly uncertainty, sort of moving into retirement. But you know, that's a a very difficult um, thing to actually achieve in, in a world where you've, you know, receiving a, a regular wage or salary into the situation where you're effectively living off capital for the first time. We live in a very fast moving world. Things are going to keep changing. You know, unfortunately, a lot of retirees uh, bemoan the fact that, uh, you know, the, uh, the age pension rules keep changing, superannuation keeps changing, tax keeps changing and so on. And, and unfortunately, I can't look anyone in the eye and say, well, there's going to be a world soon where, where that's not going to happen. And part of the reason why it keeps happening is the things underneath those rules keep changing. In other words, our demographics are shifting. A whole lot of things keep changing, and, and that's it's very difficult. And this is where these advisors were, were doing such a good job trying to give the reassurance, trying to 
provide the information in a, in a simple way, but that that control motive is is very strong. Yeah, some certainly interesting conversations around that control piece because I think it's a it's absolutely a huge piece. I think we you mentioned some like six uh, six out of ten people or almost six out of ten people um, feel like they're forced to retire uh, at that time, and so um, and you also mentioned obviously community, and a lot of people talked about the community um, uh, being a, being a big part. So you know, income obviously regular income, community and control. Now, um, one of the things that um, that we sort of touch on a, a quite a number of times is, and obviously Jason was talking about this too, was this this idea of collecting in, you know qualitative data. We're very good, aren't we, as an industry at understanding the numbers when it comes to you know returns or st- stats around population, and but we're probably not that great at collecting that happiness index type conversations around are people satisfied? Are they stressed? Are they fearful? And if so, on a, on a scale of one to 10, whereabouts is that? I think, I think um, the medical medical profession are quite good at it on, you know, when it comes to how much pain are you in? Um, but that's probably one thing that we could as, you know, as a profession do a better job as. I think you're right. I think you're right. And one of the, one of the most interesting now, the reason that this broader topic of you know financing retirement and the various elements of that is so interesting is that it it brings together just so many different skill sets from psychologist to statistician to you know you get into the heavy duty. Fortunately, we didn't hear too much of the heavy duty stuff, but the whole sort of pension finance, you know, projecting out into the future with unknown life expectancies and all those sorts of uh, interesting things. But it does bring together. Uh, a huge range of, of human disciplines in this space. And I think that's, that's what makes it so interesting for me anyway. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Now uh, we probably move on to some of the conversations we had with, with uh, Nicola. Now, one of the things that struck me when I had a conversation uh, with her was really around the, the conversation around the transition periods and the time it takes for for people to really transition to one stage of life to a, a different stage of life. And we can certainly talk about stages uh, later on as well. But just uh, I resonated with what she said. Um, she talked about that process often being similar to a grieving process that we go through. And that, that really brought that psychology, as you mentioned, piece to me to say, well, you know what? I think that you could be right. There could be a process that we need to understand uh, that people go through. Yes, I agree. And I think we probably don't, you know, let's, let's face it. Uh, I suppose one of the ideas underlying this, this whole topic of the changing landscape of retirement is that, you know, it was, it was only in a sense, 2011, I think was the, the, the date on which the, post-war baby boom generation really started moving into retirement with on average, you know, far more wealth than any other, you know, superannuation was, or a lot of people say superannuation is immature. I think they're just not, not looking at the numbers when they say that, but, you know, people, households now are retiring with the rest of the world just looks at Australia and says, well, how did they do that? So this is, a lot of this is very new, even since the early 2000s, the, average time the average life expectancy of, of Australians has shot up in the last 20 years by nearly a decade it's about it's about nine years so we, we just the speed with which this is happening it is pretty new people are going to be um, a long time in retirement we, we still haven't conquered the uh, some of the, the cognitive decline dementia problems so advisors will know this but if you're sitting 
um, in front of a, a person who's, who's 65, that's about a 10% likelihood that they're already suffering from some form of, of dementia. And then when, when they get into their mid-80s, that's about a 30% likelihood. And we haven't really cracked that, uh, that walnut yet. So that's, a, that's a, another sort of dimension, if I can put it that, that way, to this you know, relatively new world where you know, substantial numbers of our population um, surviving to, um, to the retirement age, which of course is now effectively 66, and living a very, very long time. And I think it was, again, it was Noel who reminded us that um, people underestimate uh, how long they're actually going to live in retirement. We've done some work again with the National Seniors. If you're in your early 50s, you're, you're massively underestimating that because you haven't really thought that much about it. And as you age, you, once you get into your mid-70s, the, the sort of light bulb actually comes on and people are actually pretty good statisticians around how long, long they're going to live, perhaps because they've seen colleagues and older older friends and so on. They've got some sort of better handle on um, just how long um, people are going to live. And, and, you know, for today's 66-year-olds, that's on average, you know, 87 for men and 90 for women. And, of course, that's only the peak of the... The bell curve. So it's a it's a whole new ball game that we're um, that we're dealing with, and there are a lot of things that we we don't yet know. Absolutely, uh, it's 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 got to be a challenge for Challenger in that respect, because obviously that as you mentioned, the superannuation system, you know, is is well revered around the world. Uh, you know, an overnight success thirty years in the making. Uh, if you like, it's been, uh, it's not, not exactly, um, you know, we've, we've, we've been building on this for a long period of time to make it what it is, but I, I, I'm interested in what you said around the, the life expectancy or the longevity piece there for people, because obviously if you're coming into retirement and there is more money there and there is more, uh, lifestyle, there is more, um, you know, information and knowledge about health factors and, and all the other things that can extend your life essentially because you're going in healthier uh, and wealthier um how does that work for i mean that's got to be a, a challenge for challenger well actually you know yes and it's a you know it is a very insuring pool of lives is, is what we do for, for for longevity risk in other words we're pooling lives together and adding shareholder capital effectively to be able to protect people who live considerably longer than average but in a sense we, we benefit enormously from um, the law of large numbers, if I can put it that way. So if we've got tens of thousands of lives in our pool with the right actual additional buffering and supervision from APRA and all the capital and so on, in a sense, I don't want to sort of underplay this, but in a sense, we have the easy part because the law of averages, so there'll be people in our pool who die younger than average there'll be people who there'll be a lot of people sort of dotted around the average and then there'll be the, the long livers but on average because we've got so many lives there you, you know that that law will we'll see the the actual ultimate financial outcome come pretty close to the average and of course we're watching this all the time when you flip out of our life our longevity pool to the ordinary people in the street or for example the two people sitting opposite uh, an advisor in their office, their life expectancies, you know, they can be part of our pool, but if they're not, the randomness or the, the variability, if you like, of their lives against the average is far more significant than people uh, actually understand. These life expectancies are actually quite misleading. They're not misleading for us because with the tens of thousands of lives, we can sort of go, aha, look, you know, we, we're at the average. Whereas if you're just one or two people, 
your lives, um, it's it's about as sort of variable as, as stock market returns. We've actually done some work which shows the remarkable correlation. So they, uh, you know, one standard deviation of, of life expectancies would see, you know, let's make it easy, let's have the, the woman sitting there and the 66-year-old woman sitting there in the advisor's office. She Her life expectancy is anywhere, uh, so in two-thirds of cases, she'll die somewhere between 82 and 98 but not, not with any degree of certainty at the average. In fact, the likelihood of her dying at 90, you wouldn't believe this, but it's less than one in 20. Yes. So individually, life expectancy is quite a, a random and, and uh, volatile thing. In a pool, it's not. Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the messages that came out of it too. It's, uh, you know, you sort of uh, sit down and say, uh, according to the law of averages, you are here, but there is a 95% chance that you're not average. So. So uh, very good. So as you mentioned, Noel, a few times, obviously Noel was, um, you know, a bit of a gem when it comes to uh, the all things superannuation. He literally wrote the book on it. Uh, and so he was able to um, pass on quite a few uh, gold nuggets or we call gems um, during his, uh, his uh, episode. He certainly did. And one of the, one of the, the really uh, terrific ones was uh, trying to reinforce this point of you, you can't take your money with you, you know, this, this spending thing. And he, he wrapped it up by saying, uh, well, if you don't fly first class, your kids will. <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, he's, but, uh, he's definitely a good straight shooter, doesn't he, when it comes to uh, all things around superannuation. And, and, and he, you know, he, he also knows his stuff when it comes to all the different, you know, factors that around happiness and retirement and, and people um, being satisfied. And uh, Yeah, he was very strong on that. He was very strong on that. Yeah, it was basically, uh, you know, your sense of purpose and your um, – the things that are controllable. So your your group of friends, how much exercise you do, and your diet. Well, you know that's that's pretty catchy as well. He was absolutely right. The other one I really liked from Noel was he said, "Look, thinking about your um, you know the, your financial assets in re- retirement, think about it as a." He might not have used these exact words, but this is how it sounded to me. Think about a pie. It's got three slices in it. One of them is the age pension that comes from the government, gives you regular payments. It's you know effectively. Triple A rated, it's, it's, yep, it's there. Then you've got your private savings. And what he meant there was uh, your superannuation, your uh, cash that you might have in the bank or, or what have you, that's accessible and, and liquid, but it's, it's also can be, can be volatile. And then he talked about a lifetime pension. And what he really meant there was effectively, that's your annuity slice, if you like. And he didn't use this, this language, but what you'd effectively be doing there is you buying a little bit more of the age pension, if you like, this secure regular money. And every one of those pieces of pie has a trade-off. You know, it's the, the one slice doesn't do everything, but in combination, that's how you should be thinking about your retirement. I thought that was a, that was another gem. Yeah, it certainly was. Very, very much looking around the real well-rounded, uh, you know, eggs and baskets and all those types of things around saying, well, there's three main levers and and we can set these levers so that um, to give you the best, uh, you know, way of living and, and, and peace of mind and all those sorts of things because it's not, again, it's not just about the numbers. It's it's very much around the emotion and, and the you know, people going through that process. Which brings us to a conversation I had with Phil. Really, uh, I guess we kicked this one off around the conversation around the baby bust, uh, which is a bit of commentary, which has been out there for a while, I guess, and around the conversation of these baby boomers coming through and what's that going to do to the actual system as, it, as, they, as they move through? 
Yeah, it was interesting that uh, because of the the beauty of these podcasts is that uh, I certainly didn't have anything to do with uh, who was going to speak and what they were going to say. And as I was listening to Phil and talking about uh, Bernard Salt and the, the Baby Bus paper, I thought, oh, gosh, I, I know that paper. We actually uh, worked with um, ASFA at its most recent um, annual conference just in um, early February, um, I interviewed Bernard um, about this paper and it's basically pointing out, again, I'm talking a little bit around what I've been talking about, this sort of new phase that we're in, the the, the emerging retirement income space. And the baby bus concept is, that in his in his research, he's saying that um, in um, 2026, we're going to have sort of what he calls peak boomer. So in other words, this wave that started um, in 2011 that I was talking about sort of reaches its peak in 2026, and um, the the point is that all of those sort of he uh, and, he, and his uh, inimitable style. He was talking about the sort of wave of people who got uh, free tertiary education, as the, the, but those were the sort of Whitlam settings, if you like. Um, they they contribute to the workforce and then they leave it. And so, what happens? You know, do they do they do they cling on to their jobs, or do the younger people sort of move them aside? And what happens to the economy when you've got um, you know, increasingly fewer workers and and more retirees. The economists talk about that as the dependency ratio, and so there are a lot of interesting um, things that um, that Phil spoke about um, off off the back of that. But I think one of the most interesting things for me, anyway, in what Phil was saying, was this concept of um, what he called values based advice, and not not so much. It, it was a sort of species of goals based, the way I understood it, anyway. But aligning with the uh, the values that the, the client has and trying to sort of fulfil those rather than just constantly talking about money. And in fact, I think it was Phil who said, look, it's not about money, it's not about fees, it's not about returns or adequacy. These are all the sort of um, you know, icons, if you like, of people who talk about this stuff. It's really about taking stress off the client, advocating for them, not just retaining clients, actually being an advocate for them. And um, you know, through those mechanisms, uh, helping them uh, fulfil their their values, which I just thought was uh, a really nice way of, of talking about this. Yeah, absolutely. That's definitely the uh, the pathway to happiness. Uh, making sure that you're you're filling those emotional values. And the other thing I noticed too with um with this conversation is around uh, the emotional state. We sort of mentioned before around fear and stress and anxiety and worry and those sorts of things. And and then providing this you know positive emotional state and a state of you know being happy and and content and and those sorts of things helps make better rational decisions. And quite often it's very difficult from the planner's point of view to present a rational decision to be made uh, to a person who's in an, in a state where they're no, when they're not physically or mentally capable of making those rational decisions because they are stressed or anxious or upset or worried. Yes. Yeah, I think that's right. I think uh, also the the most worried people are the people, the, the, the uh, sociologists and so on, call it an anticipatory worry. So people who aren't yet in retirement, they started thinking about it and it really, really scares them. And as they move towards retirement and then, you know, even I think it was, again, one of our podcasters said that they thought it took a good 18 months or perhaps more for people to actually adjust into the circumstances of retirement. And you think about that, it makes sense. If you've worked all your life, there's a whole routine that you go through. Accompanying uh, expenditures, the, the more expensive lunch that you have to buy in the city, all the transport, they all just disappear. 
and things settle down to the norm of what it's like to be in retirement. And we, again, working with the National Seniors, people tend to be quite um, okay with adjusting to whatever their new circumstances are. And these circumstances can, in some cases, be, be quite different from what was envisaged or the, the lifestyle that, uh, that was enjoyed while working, but they seem to be able to, once they're in that situation, they, they tend to find that it maybe wasn't as bad as they were as they were fearing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, again, it comes back to that that transition process, um, and and perhaps we, you know, whether it's similar to a grieving process or not, could be for, for a lot of people. But there is, it's definitely a, uh, a an emotional process that uh, to go through. And then you're absolutely right. The conversation did, did tend to be once people have gone, oh, okay, it's a bit like riding a bike. I'm used to it now. I'm, I'm, I'm ex- it's actually okay. I don't, I don't know what I was worried about where that uh, fear and anxiety was coming from. So. As we move through the conversations, we sort of talked about uh, a lot of uh, around aged care, um, around um, a lot of retirees having both um, experience with aged care, not just for themselves, but for their parents. Yeah. Well, I think we find uh, we a challenge. We, we have um, products that seek to help uh, in the aged care situation. And often the, uh, not necessarily our clients, but there's considerable Stakeholders, nonetheless, in some of the discussions and decisions, are indeed the uh, the, the generation of um, effectively the children of, of the retirees who may be in their let's let's say their fifties or perhaps their their sixties are uh, intimately involved in in sort of helping with with some of those decisions. Often, often, uh, often made um, you know more or less at the last minute. And I think Rachel spent a bit of time explaining how. Uh, you you have retirees who uh, resist, uh, defer decisions, or even sort of actively declare war on the idea of going. That she used words that were, were reasonably similar to that um, of the idea of going into residential care. But she explained that, of course, you know, there are, everybody thinks it's just residential care, but there's a whole panoply of of different choices that can be made, and that's really where the advice value proposition comes in. Yes, the the finances are again. You know, it's like getting the age pension all over again. Uh, quite complicated. But Rachel was explaining, "Hey, that's you know the, the advice piece is actually all about what you can choose, what you get or don't get, and so there's a whole world of, of making things better so long as you're you're getting the right kind of advice." And I thought that was extremely um, valuable uh, material. Yeah, Rachel has a very good way of explaining a lot of that and and putting people's mind at ease a little bit too um, with what's available. Uh, one of the things Rachel also mentioned that I was intrigued about was the and we sort of talked about this um, with the, the the baby bus conversation is around aged care and the fact that uh, I think she mentioned something like um, it's going from one point three million beds to three point five million beds in in twenty fifty or or thereabouts. So that's a huge. Um, you know the the bubble, if you like, coming through into aged care, and and what's that going to do for the aged care sector? And and obviously a little bit of that was addressed at the Royal, at the Aged Care Royal Commission, but uh, it doesn't sound like there's been too many outcomes from that. No, Rachel painted a, a pretty challenging kind of story about where you know she. I think she was prefacing that some fairly uh, major changes were going to have to uh, happen in this space. You know, she used one example of. Uh, well, one interesting point she made was that indeed the, the aged care workforce itself, so the, the people who service aged care uh, facilities are, are ageing 
Um, so not only is there pressure on things as they are now, but as as time uh, as time marches on, where are all those workers going to come from? And I think she was presaging a world where uh, things are going to have to centralise themselves in in hub, hubs. At one point, I think she was talking about well. Think about it. There, are, there just aren't enough nurses in Australia to be hopping in cars and driving from from home to home in a world where we think, oh, it's easy. We'll just we'll just everybody, you know, in in home care. Well, okay, that sort of decentralises things, but it comes at, a, at an enormous service cost of getting to all those different locations. So, I think she was optimistic in the sense that if she could see the sort of changes that she thought needed to be made, but they. Um, they involve some fairly dramatic shifts from what we're doing at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that includes, you know, developers building these types of facilities and hubs and exactly and all yep. sorts of things. So, yeah, well, that was really interesting. And who's yeah. going to pay for it all? Exactly. Yeah. And 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 just the sheer mindset as well, too, that uh, the baby boomers don't want to do things the way that their parents did them. And I guess that works, true. For, that works for yep. every single other generation. I don't think my kids want to do things the way I do it, that's for sure. <laughs> Now the next uh, the next um, person we heard from was um, Sheena regarding a lot of the uh, Centlink side of things, and obviously that's been uh, that's an interesting process for a lot of people. There's a lot of often can be a lot of fear or, or pain points around dealing with Centlink. Yeah, this was uh, yeah this was this came through a lot, particularly um, with Sheena, and even just the idea of these. Uh, I suppose intermediations, or you might call them con- concierge services, where um, it's become a viable business to um, to effectively help people access um, a government um, agency like like Centrelink. And Sheena was another person who spoke with great passion um, about what she was about what she was doing, and that, that sounded great. And, and you know, obviously, adding a lot lot of value. And indeed, um, Challenger itself finds finds um, you know this to be a thing as well. So we have. Uh, for a reasonably short period of time, got a um, uh, a special arrangement with a, a similar, uh, I'm assuming, similar outfit to uh, Advice Link that the chain has got. They're called Retirement Essentials, and um, Challenger's offering advisors, as I said, for a limited period. And there's a microsite that we've set up where people could go and have a look. We're um, offering a free access um, to to Retirement Essentials to give advisors a the experience of, of getting this very sort of assistance with um, guiding people um, through the perils of, of settling and just giving clients a, a sort of an assessment of where they might be in relation to the age pension. And we, we again heard from Sheena about people's just reluctance to, you know, that there's still with some uh, retirees a, a stigma or just a reluctance. They don't think they're entitled to it. And so they don't access the age pension. Indeed, even in our research we look at um, uh, <clears throat> we look at age pension access by by age because a lot of people talk about the age pension just as a as a great big blob and what, what I mean by that is they talk about um, everybody over 65 um, accesses the, the the pension on average of X and we say well look, that's not a very informative number let's look by year groups and what we see uh, is that very new retirees so if we were looking at products effectively 66 to 70, there's actually a very low rate of access to the age pension. Now, this this could be driven by a number of different things, longer participation in the workforce, lack of eligibility because of high super balances. 
but we, we get the sense also there's this kind of lag or reluctance of, oh, geez, I don't have to. Oh, there's some people who absolutely need to front up the Centrelink on day one to, to get their age pension because they, they simply wouldn't be able to survive. But there's a, there's a middle group who, um, who seem to take a bit of time and services like this have, have come into that space to just, just take, the, take the pain away that, effectively. Yeah, I think the services that uh, that you're offering uh, are fantastic. Obviously, um, there's reasons why people don't uh, don't approach them or don't really feel like it at the time. And obviously, uh, time is one of those things. The amount of time it takes to to spend, and they'd rather be doing other things. Uh, but also the um, fear of rejection or fear of being told no, and and the um, and the, the the just the misunderstanding, I guess, of um, a lot of the concepts. But I think uh, a lot of the time, again, you know, advisors are very good at translating, being the translator when it comes to financial services products. And I think we kind of need almost that translation service when we're talking, uh, when we're talking about Centrelink items. Um, yeah, so there's that. But I also think um, she, she hit the nail on the head when it comes to, you know, the people in Centrelink are just humans doing their best doing their job and uh, quite often they're, they're you know they're, they're put in a situation where they're it's a you know they don't quite always know what's going on and and they they're, uh, they're they're dumped in a situation where they have to help people and and so yeah sometimes it's just the fact that you know a training training problem oh yes yeah that's a it's a hugely technical you know this is why these specialists i suppose have developed it that it is a you know it's a specialist niche uh, particularly with your you know, dual means tests and all that other kind of complicated uh, sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's not easy. Yep, fantastic. Now, uh, we move on uh, through the series, getting towards the end now. Uh, we spoke to Richard, um, and I really love what he talked about with the different stages of retirement and how he explained that to his clients. Oh, yeah. No, it was great. You have to you have to like the teenagers and the comfy shoes and the comfy chair. And I thought he's I thought the teenagers was particularly um, resonated. People who've been locked in the workforce, bringing up kids, all of a sudden they've got a bit of free time and a bit of their own money and you just got to sort of let the reel out a little bit and let them do their thing. So I thought that was that was uh, really interesting uh, and and quite useful. And again, I think it was it was Richard who was talking about how long it takes to adjust into into retirement. But but also he was a big one on what he called the um, Sort of surety of income, the security of um, of the people's um, you know regular um, regular needs. And I think he had a, a nice little sort of rule of thumb where he said that you know for for clients who needed say fifty thousand dollars a year, they get eighty percent of that from the age pension and an annuity, and then the, effectively he's assuming that they've got additional um, liquid savings in the form of uh, of super, which in a good year is going to top that up and in a, in a lean year, maybe not. And um, that's their, he called it their pay packet. And this is something, a challenge that we just always talk about, you know, in retirement, where's your retirement paycheck coming from? Working out, you know, what you actually need as opposed to, to what you want. And again, um, in one of the podcasts, there was, I might've even been in, in Jason's, but I'm, I'm not, not 100% sure that a very high number, surprisingly high number, of um, people surveyed or in this particular client base could actually say, uh, make the distinction between expenditure that was needs oriented as opposed to, to wants oriented. And the idea is, of course, when you, you have um, a year that's not, not so great, you can reduce expenditure um, on the wants. And indeed, uh, this comes back to um, 
again in in one of the podcasts we we heard about um, the, the sort of core function of the advice was really doing a, an annual cash flow forecast, which is kind of okay. Well, another year's passed. This is where we started out. This is what happened, and you know now we're going to talk about what it looks like going forward. And that would largely be a mixture of uh, the inv- investment return experience, I suppose, the portfolio, how much had been were you were you spending over or under the the budget. But interestingly, also, and this came out in a couple of podcasts, the relevance of understanding things that might have changed from a health perspective with the clients. So, you know, there's no point sort of robotically spitting out, um, you know, average statistics about things if one of your clients has unfortunately just received a, a cancer diagnosis. So this is um, this is a sort of swing factor and, and very much what the, you know, the value that can be added, I suppose, in the annual uh, catch up is really just to understand, you know, how things are going from uh, from the health perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of aspects of that. Cash flows, funnily enough, cash flow uh, comes back to being king it, uh, again, doesn't it? You know, surety of income. It sure does. Yes. Surety of income yeah. uh, providing uh, that that uh, emotional state of being uh, actually I'm okay. I know we've got income coming in. Um, I know I can pay my bills. Um, but yeah, I do. I did. Uh, I did really enjoy uh, Richard describing those that teenage years. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the freedom word. Uh, you know, getting some freedom from the uh, from the daily grind or from you know kids leaving home or whatever it might be. Very similar to the freedom of you know getting your driver's license or or leaving home for the first time. So, uh, I thought that was uh, absolute classic. And I think the um, there was some conversation that came out uh, around those three life stages being. Um, you know, able or less able and dependent um, as terms, but I, I really did enjoy uh, Richard's interpretation of that. Now, obviously, uh, that's sort of the, the 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 series that of the people we interviewed. But um, there's obviously a, a few other things when I think about uh, or you or you and I have spoken about the changing landscape of retirement um, that we sort of didn't cover so much in these episodes. But things uh, and, and we've sort of touched on intergenerational tensions. But technology is one that I've always and you know enjoyed. And we sort of did talk a little bit about technology in the series and and um, embracing technology uh, and and you know debunking the the idea that retirees don't want technology technology came through in in a lot of the in a lot of the podcasts in a, in a positive way it was either that you know they were they were using they weren't making a big deal out of it but they were using clearly using tools in um, in helping their clients and there were opinions expressed about you know the typical retirees of you know they've got kids overseas i i, I mean that's situation myself and so um, you know that that in a sense uh, creates a need uh, and a use for technology. So I think the uh, uh, the themes were were positive. But if you project out, if we're talking about you know how this how this might continue to change, there's no doubt that we are going through globally a, a period of um, a very rapid technological change. And the concern and the issue for retirees is once you disconnect from a workplace you are effectively your own IT manager. And indeed, we talked earlier about the, the next generation, the, the role that adult kids can play in, in this. Um, you know, I think my parents are in their 80s and, um, you know, I've on, on, you know, done things like buy mum an iPad to try and keep her up with the, um, but, but, you know, she can now no, no longer uh, use that. And so the fear is that as you, as you get, get older, it just becomes more and more difficult. Imagine, imagine if you'd just been just been a little bit too old to um, catch on to the smartphone 
um, world, if you like. And so, you know, particularly during COVID, if you didn't didn't weren't carrying a smartphone, it's very difficult to uh, to keep up. And so, that's a bit of a metaphor, I suppose, for the for the challenge uh, that lies ahead for a, for a lot of retirees. Yeah, fantastic. Now, um, we also uh, had some conversations around, you know, global risks and, um, you know, all sorts of things from climate change through to, you know, obviously pandemics um, and how that that's affecting, you know, retirement. Yeah, look, I, I don't want to make too much of this, but I, I think, you know, again, for people who are, have been in retirement for a while, perhaps uh, the um, prominence of climate change issues in our society is going to become more pronounced than it, than it is now. And again, for people who just sort of haven't really been on board with that, they're going to find, I think, uh, that even investment products will be sort of captioned, you know, is this a climate change for, you know, very rapidly we're going to uh, to move into a, a world where, uh, you know, for those who are participating in workplaces and, and in, in the, you know, still in the working age population are going to find a significant amount of change. But for people who are, sitting at home, they're going to find it quite confronting just how quickly we're going to move into a world where, where climate change and climate change investment products is really what I'm, I'm talking about are going to become a real a real thing. Yeah, it's certainly, uh, certainly a, well, I don't want to call it a trend because it's certainly, but it's a, it's a change that's taking place and, and um, a lot of people taking that very seriously, especially when it comes to, um, you know, the end consumer having preferences around what they want or how they want their money invested based on their beliefs and their values. Yeah. Uh, just quickly before we go, I wouldn't mind touching on the, you know, the, the inequality, um, the, the gender pay gap, the gender superannuation gap um, conversations, because that's uh, not really something we spend a lot of time talking about within the, uh, within the series, but it's certainly something that uh, is part of the changing landscape. Yeah, I think, uh, I think the, the research we do shows that the, the gender gap is is narrowing there's an interesting trend where women um, who can do this in their 50s tend to be uh, topping up a little bit on super i know with the uh, recent cabinet cabinet reshuffle that, that jane hume has assumed uh, responsibility for i think it's called um, women's security financial security um, so there are a lot of people looking at, at ways of um, closing the, the gender gap. I guess, I guess the gender gap in super or in retirement savings is really just a derivative of the employment gender gap. That's it's a secondary um, symptom, if you like. But um, you know, for the reasons I spoke about before, uh, you know, you may go into retirement as a as a financially well off household. Things can happen in retirement, and it's often the the female who finds herself living longer. And living longer alone, and that it's that it's that tail end piece. And for, for women who who are already living alone pre-retirement, it's even more burdensome because of the the, the feature I spoke about before. It's simply it's like buying a house by yourself. It's simply more um, you don't get the sort of um, economies of scale, if you like, of having having two people contributing. Yep. No, that's uh, exactly right. So that's um, there's still 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 some stuff to work on there. Um, now the other thing I just wanted to quickly touch on was the um, you know the the conversation around working stop working and retiring being the you know the line in the sand. But as we know, there is a lot of people that then you know cut down to a few days a week or go part time or spend some time consulting or spend quite a bit of time working into their you know retirement years. Uh, do you see that becoming more or you know how do you see that as a trend? Is that becoming more and more? Or? 
Again, the, um, the data takes a little bit of a while to, to um, become visible, but you know, right now, certainly in, the, in this decade, the age at which particularly well-educated and you know, reasonably well-off, it's a little bit different if you have a blue-collar job, but people are going to be um, spending, you know, remaining in the workforce to, to much older ages because they want to, uh, because they can, and COVID uh, has had a real, uh, has really given this a, a real fillip. So that older, you know, people in um, in the sixty plus age group, so people of, of my age have experienced, you know, involuntary. Again, it's been involuntary through COVID that, in fact, um, they can perform their roles uh, either entirely from home or partly from home and partly at work. So they've already had a sort of a a twelve month pre taste. Uh, of what it may look, look like, not to retire, but to move into a sort of interim period where they may be fully employed, but doing it in a sort of way that feels a little bit like pre-retirement. So that's been a, in a sense, a remarkable um, positive that's um, that's helped. You know, we um, one of the speakers was talking about the idea of um, you know taking as much annual leave as you can before retirement to sort of get in the field. Well, we've been given, we've, we've had a turbocharged version of that by, by the end of COVID. So there isn't that sort of cliff edge where, you know, on a Friday, you, you sort of get your gold watch and hand your keys back in on the Monday, you're in retirement. COVID has actually sort of sliced through that. Yep. Now, uh, now thank, thank you very much for joining me and having uh, this conversation today. Um, if we chunk back out to the big picture, uh, looking forward into the future, how, do you see um, obviously changes is going to happen. There's going to be, we, you know, there's a whole lot more changes coming down the track. We're just not sure what they are. What are your predictions on those? You know, what, what are the things that are coming sooner than later? Or what do you think's, think that we need to work on first for the, for the entire system? Well, it seems as if the uh, debate about the SG going up to 12% is, um, you know, I think there are some well-informed leaks that, uh, uh, that that's that's going to continue on its on its path up to up to 12%. I've always been relatively ambivalent about that, largely because you've got to be uh, you've got to be under fifty to actually feel the um, because of and, and again I'll, I'll attribute uh, this to Noel, but Noel reminded us over and over again about the uh, the impact of compounding and having having money that's been sitting in the system for a long time. That's where you get the kicker, and the reason why super is working so well now is that we went up to nine percent in two thousand and two. Okay, nearly nearly twenty years ago. So um, yes, you know, overall going to twelve percent is is most likely a, a a good thing on on balance. But if you're fifty or over, you'll really only see an incremental change in the um, in the amount that you retire with. Younger people, yes, it'll make a considerable difference. So we can kind of push that away as being a big deal. I think the um, the big, the big change. If we're going to be in this low rate environment uh, for uh, for the, as long as it looks like we're going to be, and people uh, certainly not going to be living uh, shorter lives, they're going to be living longer ones. It's this giving people the confidence to spend their retirement savings, protecting their longevity risk. And longevity risk is not something that you really uh, spend a lot of time talking to clients about. It's it's not a topic they they really um, grasp. They don't necessarily want to be thinking about their own lifespan and their own death and so on. So you can kind of put longevity risk under the bonnet, but what you're really doing in in adding a longevity risk product to the mix is you're giving them the confidence to spend now. 
And this is what the government is working on in relation to a thing they call the Retirement Income Covenant, which creates a, a new duty on, on trustees of large funds to have a strategy that actually does exactly that, gives people the confidence to spend. So that's going to be the big change because we heard from a lot of the speakers that people are effectively self-insuring. They're creating their own buffer of capital, which is what a, a life insurance, that's what, that's what Challenger does. We get shareholder capital to buffer and make sure that your annuity payments can be made. And what we have in the mo at the moment all around Australia is retirees doing that themselves. And um, as a result, they don't have the confidence to spend that and they're passing the money on to the next generation. So that's really the big change that's uh, that's coming. Yeah, fantastic. The uh, and, and you're absolutely right. The confidence in spending—that's certainly what the government and the economy is after at the moment, as uh, at, at the current state of where we're up to. Uh, Jeremy, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Now, um, what are the next steps from here with regards to? I think um, I think there's uh, there's a thought piece going to be created out of this series, and and how can people find or or, or upload? Yeah. We're looking forward to to writing up um, some, a piece of work, a piece of thought leadership, if you like, summarising and picking out the, all the interesting points from the podcast. And what we're um, uh, wanting uh, listeners to do is to register to get one of those. And you can do that by going to uh, challenger.com.au forward slash XY, nice and simple URL. And when the um, thought piece is done, it'll turn up in your email inbox. Fantastic. Thank, and thank you. And please pass on our, uh, our thanks to everybody at Challenger for sponsoring this series. It's been fantastic to um, to have you on board. Really appreciate it. Oh, it's been a great pleasure. Thanks, Fraser. Well, there you have it. And that concludes our series uh, sponsored by Challenger regarding the changing landscape of retirement. Uh, I'm Fraser Jack, and it's time of that time of the week where we do a couple of shout outs. And I'm joined by Emily. Welcome, Emily. Hey, Fraser. How you doing? Very, very good. Thank you. Very good. Now, who are we shouting out to today? All right. Today, we are going to give a shout out to Hayley Knight. She jumped on for an XY Plus web event recently and totally crushed it. She shared some phenomenal strategies and tips. Well, actually, we went through the top four mistakes that advisors make when looking for an outsourced power planning relationship. And to counteract that, she gave us a bunch of tips to help advisors find a productive and profitable relationship with an outsourced power planner. So lots of great takeaways in there very generous with what she shared so it was just a really really good way to level up and understand how to find a great outsource power planet so thank you Haley. 